am ready to activate the sound barrier. Welcome to episode 99 of One Man Watchpoint and Overwatch Podcast. This is, of course, an Overwatch podcast where we talk about everything going on in the wonderful world of Overwatch. Now, this episode is a particularly exciting episode because this one will be titled The Canadian Tornado. And if you're not familiar with why, you'll understand shortly. If you are a new listener, allow me to introduce myself. I'm your host, Sir Dr. JM. That's at Sir DRJM on all socials. Why not follow me over, especially on the Bird app, where you can tweet at me, you can DM me, you can do whatever you want over there. Send me a message with your questions, comments, topics, whatever you've got for the show, and I will bring them over here. And of course, drop a review on podcast services everywhere where this podcast is available. You're going to have Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, etc., etc. So give us a follow, leave us a review, tell your friends, and all that jazz. And of course, if you you enjoy the sound of my voice. You can also check me out over on the Ready, Set, Pwn podcast, also available on podcast services everywhere. Ready, Set, Pwn is your premier source for everything Vancouver Titans and Toronto Defiant. Now, as I alluded to at the beginning of the show, we've got some exciting stuff to talk about this episode. Of course, the Canadian Tornado finally arrives. We've got Overwatch World Cup news. We've, of course, got a new patch dropping and more. So without further ado, let's dive on in. Oh, enough waiting around, let's get out there! We're going to kick things off today in the news segment of our show with an article over on .esports.com posted by Scott Robertson on January 18th, which reads, Overwatch League teams are reportedly seeking collective legal action against Activision Blizzard for losses. High costs and low revenue have forced the teams to take action. A majority of Overwatch League teams are taking the first steps towards a collective bargaining process against the League and Activision Blizzard, seeking economic relief after years of high operating costs and, quote, continually missed promises on revenue, end quote, according to a report from esports reporter Jacob Wolf. The collection of teams has retained British law firm Sheridan's to negotiate on the team's behalf as a whole, rather than have individual teams pursue negotiations with Activision Blizzard one by one, according to Wolf. The endeavor is reportedly being spearheaded by Overactive Media, the ownership group for the Toronto Defiant franchise, the Mad Lions organization, and the Toronto Ultra franchise in the Call of Duty League. An exact list of teams seeking collective action has not been made available. Tensions between the teams and Activision Blizzard are reportedly high, with some teams seeking economic relief after spending millions over the past six years between franchise payments and operating costs. Many teams operate at a loss, and each team's revenue share from the league is at a quote all-time low due to the non-existence of a media rights deal after the deal with YouTube expired and the loss of numerous sponsors following the state of California's sexual harassment lawsuit aimed at Activision Blizzard. Discussions regarding collective action toward the league have been had since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, right around the start of the 2020 season, according to Wolf. At this time, Overwatch League teams are still preparing for the start of the league's sixth season in 2023, with the deadline to field at least a starting lineup having been extended to March 13th, 2023. The official start date for the 2023 Owl season has not yet been announced. Has not been announced yet, pardon me. So, bit of an interesting article here uh, definitely an unexpected one and certainly a unique story not the uh, typical story we hear on one man watchpoint right we are frequently covering the ongoings of the league but not every day that you hear that uh, the league's teams are sort of organizing against the league and against activision blizzard of course now what does all this mean well 
people had speculated when this first kind of was breaking that this meant, you know, the season would be delayed, things like that. Um, you know, perhaps teams would refuse to play, stuff like that. I certainly don't think that's going to happen by any mean. That would certainly, uh, you know, only cause further problems and obviously further losses for these organizations as well. Ultimately, they all want the league to continue and to flourish, which I think is sort of the root of this problem. Uh, you know, the promise of the Overwatch League in the beginning was, of course, this premier esports league, this S-tier league, uh, one of, you know, one of the top tier esports leagues around. Um, and of course, we have certainly not seen that happen. Um, yes, to those of us who are fans, who are ingrained in the community, who follow these teams and love these teams, uh, Overwatch is obviously the best esport around. But obviously, it has not reached the levels that, say, a uh, League of Legends or, in a lot of ways, even something like Valorant has reached recently. You know, Riot certainly seems to have a bit of the special sauce when it comes to this esports side of things. Um, so, what is really going on here? Well, it sounds like teams are annoyed because this league is expensive, um, and and this is one way for them to combat that. Now few little interesting tidbits in this article, of course, are the fact that this is being led by Overactive Media. Now, if you follow Overactive Media and or the Toronto Defined franchise and or any of the upper senior leadership within the organization, you would know that they are pretty staunch defenders of the league um, and, and big time supporters, if you ask me. Uh, in particular, of course, we'll shout out friend of the show, Adam Adamu at Grayson on Twitter. That's G-R-A-Z-E-N, I believe. Um, and they have always been uh, vocal about supporting the league and the decisions it makes, um, even to the point of recent news back at the end of last year when the uh, roster construction deadlines were being pushed back because of the ongoing deals with, uh, well, the ongoing deals falling through with netties in uh, the Chinese region, of course. And even during that time, we saw other GMs, um, other leadership organi leadership in some of these Overwatch League organizations uh, commenting, you know, negatively towards the league and and competitive integrity and things like that. Uh, we did actually see Adam Adamu and some of Overactive Media tweeting out support for the league's decisions and, you know, uh, maybe maybe not so much support for their their decisions, but supporting the league in what was going on. Um, so it's, it is really kind of shocking to see that this is being led by them. Uh, like I say, just kind of stalwart defenders and, uh, you know, supporters of the league. And ultimately, in my experience as well, um, one of the more vocal organizations when it comes to building the esports scene, and of course, especially building it in the Canadian region, uh, which is, for all intents and purposes, largely untapped compared to, you know, the, the size of the country that we live in here. So... That's one of the few interesting parts of this. Uh, the other is that, uh, well, this does talk about the non-existence of a media rights deal after the deal with YouTube expired. So that's interesting because we have not yet heard if there would be uh, exclusive streaming rights in at least the North American region, similar to how there has been in past years where uh, we obviously made the shift from Twitch over to YouTube. Given the fact that there is no deal uh, announced here and it seems like this kind of confirms that there's no deal it's suspected that likely they will be streaming to if not more than one platform perhaps making the jump back to twitch um twitch is obviously i believe the leading uh platform for game live streaming 
these days, at least again in the North American region. So it wouldn't surprise me at all to see Twitch come back a-roaring with respect to the Overwatch League. They also talk about the loss of numerous sponsors following the state of California's sexual harassment lawsuit aimed at Activision Blizzard. Of course, no surprise that that drew the ire of many organizations and many organizations pulled out. Obviously, we saw sponsors like Coke, uh, State Farm, um, Cheez-It Grooves, and many others, you know, uh, stop supporting the league. And then, of course, just in, during the grand finals of this past season, we did see Butterfinger come kind of come out of the woodwork um, and have a pretty exciting campaign with uh, the Overwatch League. But the point is, it certainly seems like they haven't made up a ton of that sponsorship activation, which is bad for the league. And then, of course, we talk about the COVID-19 pandemic, which I probably don't need to go into if you've been following uh, this podcast or the league or just, you know, been a human being for the past three years. So lots of hot gossip in this article um, really will be interesting to see what exactly happens with this. Do we hear any more of it? Um, you know, does the sort of public announcement of it or um, public revealing of it, does that sort of push one organization, uh, you know, towards something or the other? You know, does that push uh, this Sheridan's group to maybe put out a statement? Um, does this push Activision Blizzard to put out a statement? Does this push the Overwatch League to put out a statement or something to that extent? Uh, could be really interesting to see what happens here. Could be interesting to see what kind of shakeups and deals come from this. But let's move on. Happier news, well, potentially happier news, we'll head on over to a site that I don't think I had ever heard of, and I'm a little bit surprised to see them getting the exclusive interview here. But we're going to head on over to nme.com with an article by Andy Brown posted on January 18th. Now, this is a bit of a long one, so I might pause part way. I'll pause throughout here and I'll kind of talk a little bit about what they're talking about here. So the article reads Overwatch 2 director Aaron Keller on balance battles and what lies ahead. The Overwatch director discusses Blizzard's balance philosophy and upcoming campaign and what lies in store for 2023. Quote, I'll be honest with you. I'm still trying to get my mojo back, laughs Aaron Keller, game director for Blizzard's competitive shooter Overwatch 2. He's referring to the terror he feels when Overwatch 2 allocates him the damage-dealing DPS role of his team, but there's a small parallel to be found with the game itself, which suffered from lengthy delays before launching in October. Months later, Keller and Blizzard have learned a lot about the game they created. Yet even before the shooter was playable, the studio faced a difficult decision regarding the game's campaign. The single-player mode was originally meant to launch along with Overwatch 2's multiplayer, but was relegated to a post-launch update months before the game was released. Keller says that although it was a really difficult decision to split the game up, it was the right call to make. Quote, We found ourselves in a position where we couldn't release all of the content that we were building for Overwatch 2 until the campaign was finished recalls Keller, who says that development on the campaign was, quote, going slower than we wanted it to. Quote, we couldn't release all the content that we were building for Overwatch 2 until the campaign was finished. Ellipses. We found ourselves saying, we're going to keep withholding content from our players so we can release everything together with our original strategy, the campaign, or we're going to have to change the way that we think about releasing the game, end quote. As a result, Overwatch 2's campaign will be released gradually starting later this year, and Blizzard is, quote, still finalizing, end quote, how its content will be rolled out. A chance to tell Overwatch's big overarching narrative is something that Keller is particularly excited about, as he points out that it's, quote, not something you can really do in the middle of a multiplayer game. Quote, 
we can go into a lot more depth with not just the characters in this universe, but all the big events that are happening inside of it. That's something the team is incredibly passionate about, says Keller, who adds that Overwatch's bright, hopeful, inspirational future is a setting the developer is keen to explore further. Until then, Keller has his hands busy with the segment of Overwatch that players do have, competitive multiplayer. Now I'm going to take my first pause there and I'll come back to uh, this part in the article here. But it's interesting that they're talking about the um, PvE side of things here. I don't like to say single player because, of course, uh, I don't believe it will be single player, although perhaps they put in a mode where you can play with AI teammates. But I suspect, or at least I think everything they've said, is that it's going to be more of a cooperative PvE mode as opposed to a single player. Again, maybe they have a single player way to play it, but I digress. Um, but the point is... It's interesting to hear them talk about this because, of course, this is all stuff we know. You know, okay, yeah, the game is bigger than you thought. Okay, yeah, you're having trouble getting it out the door. We knew that. But what he's not saying here is when we will be getting single... I almost called it single player. When when we'll be getting this first drop of PvE content. Of course, he says they are going to uh, uh, spread it out over a period of time, have it release... Um, I mean, he doesn't say this, but in theory, with some of these seasons that we are seeing now in Overwatch 2. But the interesting thing to me is that I'm confident that in the past they had said Season 3, we would see with the Battle Pass, with the Season 3 Battle Pass, we would see the drop of the first bit of PvE content. And I don't believe we've seen that yet. Um, I don't think they've commented on that at all. I don't think they've said anything. And if I'm not mistaken, this season of Overwatch ends on February 6th here. So by the time you're listening to this, you will have about a week and a half, just, just under two weeks left uh, to complete as much of the Battle Pass as you want um, and challenges and things like that for the season before the season ends. Which means, I believe they put maybe a week in between seasons. So that would put the next season after that starting likely March, uh, sorry, February 14th, maybe February 21st at the latest. Um, that would be two weeks, of course. Um, so anyways, that would be season three, which also means I'm expecting in the next two weeks, we get some news about season three's battle pass. Of course, the big question will be, is there any PVE content in there? Again, I am confident that in the past they said season the, on the season three roadmap, uh, was the drop of PvE there. So I'm very curious to see what they do here, if this is really uh, what they put out. I have a suspicion that's not going to be the case, because if it was, I would think they would be starting this marketing machine up, which kind of disappoints me. Uh, as someone who hasn't been super into the game for Season 2, you know, I was all in on Season 1. I thought, you know, uh, new heroes balancing things were great. It was a lot of fun to play. And then Season 2 kind of hit, and it just wasn't as fun um, for whatever reason. You know, I kind of went with the Battle Pass was uh, didn't seem as rewarding, um, and I just wasn't enjoying myself. So I've kind of stepped back from the game in a lot of ways. But I was excited for Season 3 to bring something new in, of course, the... Uh, PVE content so he doesn't say anything either way on that front but I feel like this is the first hint that we're not even going to be getting it as soon as they had originally said on the roadmap now let's continue on so the article continues. Until then, Keller has his hands busy with the segment of Overwatch that players do have, competitive multiplayer. Quote, I have a hard time finding ways to get enough time to play the game while also trying to run the game, bemoans the director, who says learning better time management has been one of his biggest takeaways from the last few months. For Blizzard, 
Keller says its lessons have been more wide-scale. The director admits the studio has a lot of work to do in addressing feedback regarding the game's reward and progression systems, and recalls Blizzard realizing in Overwatch 2's first season that its original plan, to issue one major balance patch per season, would not be enough to stay on top of the shooter's rapidly shifting meta. Let's pause here and let's talk a little bit about that. Of course, we know that uh, one of the biggest complaints has been the lack of updates, the lack of tweaking, the lack of um, balancing, really, within the game. Um, A lot of people have had complaints about how slow the team has been to respond to the, as the article says here, rapidly shifting meta and things like that. Um, I think the expectation with Overwatch 2 had been that we would be seeing regular updates, even if major balancing changes would come in between these seasons i do think it is realistic and reasonable to expect that's right not hope not cross our fingers but expect that this game is making tweaks regularly i think that means at a minimum every two weeks if you look at games in this space that are competitors with this game you look at valorant you look at apex legends you look at um Uh, what's that other one Fortnite. (laughs) even you extend that out a little bit more and look at a game like rocket league um a lot of these esports games and and i mean league of legends obviously being another one a lot of them do have constant tweaks and constant balance and that's why they maintain such a player base or that's a big part of why anyways um so i do think that they have been slow with these tweaks and updates which is why if you are you know ingrained in the community like many of us are Um, you see such a negative attitude towards the game right now is because we're stuck right now we're getting very little progress and and we're seeing a lot of the kind of same old same old Um, you know I won't go into the recycling of events which we are currently stuck in as well um, but strictly on updates and patching we aren't seeing enough right now if you ask me now of course we will talk later in the show because a patch has just dropped recently and I'll say I'll save that discussion for a little bit more. Let's continue with the article here. For players of any multiplayer title, balance can feel like an exhausting game of whack-a-mole, as the same patch that dials back one overpowered monstrosity can just as easily raise up two more in its place. Right now, Overwatch 2's monstrosity is Roadhog, a beefed-up tank that can dish out one-shot kills while boasting wild amounts of health. Keller has bad news for Roadhog mains. His damage is on Blizzard's chopping block, but the beefy boy is a good example of how balancing Overwatch can be tricky. As Keller points out, Roadhog was never changed to be this strong. He's overperforming because other heroes were changed, enabling him to move into the place he's at right now. Quote, It would be very easy for us to change him so much that he becomes unplayable, or nerfed so hard that people would think he was a throw pick, he explains, referring to heroes who the community dub weak enough to guarantee a loss if they're picked. Quote, We'd like to avoid that, so we're trying to be careful here, but at the same time we want to make our our change meaningful enough to actually have a real impact on him and the game. Keller adds that because the community will always try to find the strongest heroes to increase their chances of winning matches, Blizzard has to juggle a hands-on approach to balance with letting the community shape its own meta. Quote, there are a lot of nuance, there's a lot of nuance that goes into balance, Keller explains. It can feel like there are certain heroes that are allowed to be strong or popular and others that, when they do become really strong, the community has a pretty adverse reaction to. I think it's all very natural. One of the things we've been talking about internally is what happens when heroes that have mechanics that can be frustrating or stifling to play against become really powerful. The director points out that the same topic can be applied to current discussions around Roadhog, whose opponents can feel can find stifling due to his ability to one-shot more fragile heroes while still being difficult to kill. Quote, when heroes like that become really powerful, the community can have a pretty big reaction to it. 
Well, there are others like Orisa, who's fairly powerful as well, but her kit feels more fairer or more steady, Keller points out. I think that the community will look at a hero like that, and if it becomes the new dominant tank, it's more accepted. I'm going to just touch on that really briefly here. I mean, that seems like kind of an obvious statement he's saying here, you know. He's basically saying Orisa is also powerful, but her kit feels more fair, so people don't have as adverse a reaction to her, which, like, yeah, people don't like Roadhog because he feels cheap. <laughs> people are okay with Orisa because she feels fair. That, that's basically the root of what he's saying there. Anyways, it's a discussion that Blizzard is wrestling with at the moment. Quote, we don't want all the heroes to feel samey. We don't want the tempo of every fight in the game to feel the same every month, says Keller, who adds that although the teams enjoys the variety of abilities and mechanics in Overwatch 2, they are, quote, acutely aware that many of the heroes can be pushed too far. There's a push and pull and a lot of nuance to the way we do this. When he's not chasing down unruly hogs, Keller is looking ahead. There's a lot to unpack, and he gets giddy discussing it. Aside from the campaign, the director says there are multiple heroes and a lot of maps planned for 2023, along with a lot more events like the, ongoing, uh, the game's ongoing Battle for Olympus event. Keller also teases several new and returning game modes, including an entirely new one he's so excited to announce, and a mysterious Season 3 skin that he thinks the community is going to go wild for. In the immediate future, Keller says the team is focusing on fleshing out Overwatch 2's roster of support heroes, which he admits offers, quote, the least amount of choice, compared to the game's tanks or damage-dealing roles. Quote, we're really focusing on supports right now. The next two heroes we're going to be released, uh, sorry, we're going to be released, okay, I read that right, are support heroes, says Keller, who teases that they, are, they bring some things to the game that we haven't seen before, some new mechanics and really exciting ways of interacting with your own team, end quote. With all of that in store, it seems likely that Keller will be putting his newfound time management skills to the test. Quote, I could talk all day about the future, he beams. Keller may still be finding his mojo on the battlefield, but the picture he paints of Overwatch 2's future suggests the game has found its own, and what lies in store will be a busy, less Roadhog-dominated year for fans. Sorry, Roadhog. So there you go. That is the whole article. Um, a few things to touch on at the end there, and then I'll kind of just go over a little bit more. Um... So obviously he does talk about the balance of, of, well, balancing the game, which is interesting because, I mean, obviously these people, you know, Keller and the team, are not unaware of the community's perception of, of the game, of the patching, of the balancing, and things like that. Um, but it does seem a little bit like perhaps, I mean, perhaps there's a resourcing issue. Perhaps they don't have enough. Perhaps they didn't scale up the team enough. Perhaps they weren't allowed to uh, grow as much as they needed to because of all the... Uh, turmoil that not only uh, the Overwatch team has had, but also the Blizzard team, and obviously extending out to Activision Blizzard. So there's that. You know, they may be dealing with restricted resources, just like so many of us do in our day-to-day -day jobs, which is a part of why they can't react and balance things as as much as the audience, myself included, might like or wish to see. Um, some some of the good things he does mention here, of course, he's talking a lot about there is a lot more coming in the future, and of course, he also touches on the fact that uh, they are focusing on support, which we already knew, um, but then he does say, you know, the next two heroes are going to be support heroes. I'm assuming he means the next two, so not including Kuriko, so not one more, but, uh, oh, well, no, because we got Kuriko and then we got Ramatra, so he must mean the next two are both support, which I think they had already announced as well anyways, but... It is good to see that they're beefing up that role. We obviously already know that they've talked in the past about the fact that they need to kind of 
look at support as a whole and, and change some things there as well. I believe just today on a live stream with a few community members, um, they talked about the fact that they're still working on tweaking uh, someone like Brigitte, um, and and they've talked in the past about tweaking Moira as well to make them a little more meaningful, impactful, and fun to play overall. So anyways, overall, this article doesn't really reveal too, too much to us, but it is an interesting uh, interview with Aaron Keller. Um, again, how NME landed this this interview or why they landed it over another outlet, I don't truly know. Maybe they're the ones that asked and nobody else was asking. Um, but it is very interesting to hear from Aaron Keller directly because, of course, he, he in theory knows the most about what's going on with the game as a whole, right? Overseeing everything, being the director and everything. So very interesting read here. Um, hopefully you don't mind picking it apart like we did there. But ultimately... I want to say the future is bright. Ultimately, I think the future is the future. Um, <laughs> there's not too much promised in this article. Aaron's kind of a, a master at the uh, dancing around the fact, um, you know, kind of answering the questions without answering the questions. He's very diplomatic about uh, his interviews and things like that. So anyways, I'm hopeful that what this means is we're going to see more in the next, honestly, in the next week or two uh, with this current season two coming to a close. Now, Let's pivot, let's shift gears, and let's head back to the Overwatch League with an article posted on January 19th by Liz Richardson over on .esports.com. This article reads, Los Angeles Gladiators adds legendary outlaws, sorry, outlaw, to its 2023 lineup. The Overwatch League offseason has been a precarious one for many veteran players as teams dismantle rosters and acquire new talent, hoping for a more successful future. Rookies will be a key part of the league's sixth season, but some longtime players won't be giving up their thrones anytime soon. The Los Angeles Gladiators announced today the addition of veteran player Dante in the tank position. He's one of the few remaining Overwatch League players to have participated in all five seasons and is a perpetual fan favorite. Dante previously played for the Houston Outlaws for four seasons and was often considered a pillar of the team. He started his Overwatch League career on the San Francisco Shock but was traded before the second season began. Throughout most of his competitive career, Dante had been a DPS player, known for his tracer play and his flexibility to pick up new heroes as necessary for new metas. With the introduction of Overwatch 2 last year, Dante flexed into the tank role, first picking up Doomfist, formerly a damage hero in the base game, to help the outlaws. As the season progressed, he added more tank heroes to his repertoire and ended up as Houston's de facto tank player. The Gladiators have picked up Dante as sorry, have picked Dante up as a tank player, meaning he's likely fully switched over to the Overwatch 2 tank lifestyle. Los Angeles previously confirmed that only damage dealer Kevster and veteran support Funny Astro would be retained for the 2023 from the 2022 roster, sorry. The team acquired another former outlaw in main support player Lastro last month. So, there you have it. Dante making the jump over to LA. Um, the interesting part of this is, of course, this was announced uh, last week at some point, January 19th. Um, but if you watch the most recent episode of Plat Chat, uh, Dante was actually on that episode. And uh, Custa and Reinforce did ask him a little bit about uh, LA. Um, he basically says he wants to win uh, and he wants to live somewhere nice. And, and that's where he, you know, LA fit the bill and he's excited to play there. Um, he also talked about the fact that it seems like he will be the sole tank player over there. Um, so, of course, we know that Reiner is uh, no longer with the organization. Of course, you know, um, even with Dante's comments, there's still a chance that he comes back. But I think Dante's comments do further solidify the idea that perhaps he's not uh, rejoining the organization. 
Um, although there was another announcement uh, <laughs> related to that, which, you know, we'll probably talk about in a little bit here. So anyways, exciting to see Dante in purple. Um, a bit of a change for sure. If you've been around the league, obviously you're used to seeing him in green and black, but exciting to see him landing somewhere and uh, with an org that I think we know has a, a good thing going and a, a really good fan base as well. Um, but ultimately will be very interesting to see what exactly the Los Angeles Gladiators are cooking up in terms of the rest of their roster. Um, right now we're missing at least a hitscan DPS. Um, I would assume likely they'll pick up two more DPS players, uh, maybe two more DPS players plus a support player as well, but we'll see. Moving on from there, we're going to stick with .esports.com, this time with an article on January 23rd posted by Jessica Sharnagel, which reads, Overwatch 2 shuts down in China, leaving OWL teams in limbo. Overwatch 2 and other Blizzard titles have officially been taken offline in China after a failed contract extension with NetEase, leaving Overwatch League teams based there in limbo now that the game is unplayable in the country. Most fans were made aware of the situation after the Chengdu Hunters posted a tweet today that simply said, Goodbye, and see you again. Five teams are affected by the shutdown, including the Hunters, the Guangzhou Charge, the Hangzhou Spark, the Shanghai Dragons, and the Los Angeles Valiant, who still has its base of operations in China. The shutdown doesn't come as a surprise to most who live in the country, since Blizzard announced that it would be happening back in November. The games are suspended after Blizzard and NetEase failed to come to another licensing agreement, which ended on January 23rd. World of Warcraft, Hearthstone, Warcraft 3 Reforged, Overwatch 2, the StarCraft series, Diablo 3, and Heroes of the Storm were all taken offline in China due to the agreement's expiration. In the meantime, Overwatch League teams are left in limbo because of their lack of access to the game. Because the league still hasn't announced when the competition will return this year, fans are getting nervous about the state of the league, especially since the free agency period has been delayed multiple times as the company figures out how to get the game back online in China. As it stands, the league won't be coming back for at least a few months. The date for all teams to sign the minimum number of players is currently set at March 13th, which was pushed back from January 16th. Fans are speculating this means an April or later start date for the Overwatch League. Previously, there was a deadline for teams to have six players signed to their team as well, but the date was pushed back from its original deadline of March 1st and hasn't been revealed to fans yet. Now that the game is shut down and there's no estimate of when it will be back up, Fans are wondering if teams will move operations elsewhere so they can continue to compete or if they will be waiting for the game to come back online in China. For now, players in China won't have access to any Blizzard games and they'll have to sit and wait while the company figures out how to bring games back online. Now we have an update to this article actually, update January 23rd, 12:28 p.m. CT. So actually that was just this was just posted yesterday. Daddy Sports was sent the following statement from the head of the Overwatch League, Sean Miller, quote, We can't wait for the 2023 season to start and have been working hard behind the scenes to iron out details. We're hoping to share more with the community in the next couple of weeks and are looking forward to Alice's sixth season where we expect a full slate of teams from the East and West. So, maybe not all doom and gloom, of course, with that, uh, that little last sentence there in uh, Sean Miller's update. Um, you know, it certainly does seem like they have something cooking. They have some way, uh, some way, shape or form that they're going to be allowing these Chinese teams to play. Um, but who knows what it could really be. The, the drama around all of this has been quite insane. Obviously the article didn't go into it, but there was a, um, you know, a tweet by Activision Blizzard where they had talked about the fact that, um, 
they they talked about the fact that they had actually asked NetEase if they could extend uh, the the contract for 30 days or something just to allow more negotiations or allow them something else. NetEase basically said, no, we're not doing that. Um, NetEase like live streamed the, them tearing down a, a World of Warcraft axe statue that had been built outside of, I don't know, in some park or outside of the NetEase building or something to that extent. Um, so anyways, uh, just absolutely crazy stuff here a bitter back and forth battle between these two companies ultimately though we are left in the dark uh us we as the fans in the community i truly have no idea what's going on here you have to figure that the previous netties deal i believe was like a 10-year deal um that kind of a deal doesn't get inked overnight so you have to imagine that if they don't have a deal at this point if the game has games have in fact gone offline then there's no sign of a deal being close um and you have to imagine that this kind of deal takes a lot of time and a lot of negotiations to come through. Um, on that, you know, sort of same side of the coin, if all of these teams are relocating to another place like Seoul, um, you know, that's obviously not an easy task. That's obviously an expensive task for uh, these organizations to front. Does the league help them? Well, based on the collective uh, bargaining action that we talked about earlier, probably not. Um, so there are just a ton of question marks around this. And ultimately, we won't know until we know. So there you have it. We're going to stick with .esports.com for a couple articles here. Uh, in fact, our two final articles here. But this time, an article posted today as of recording on January 24th by Liz Richardson, which reads, and this is the title of the show, well, just about, Toronto Defiant reassembles American Tornado to take on 2023 Overwatch League season. The worst-kept secret of the offseason is finally let out of the bag. During the Overwatch League offseason, teams normally try to keep their signings as quiet as possible to maximize the impact when an official announcement comes along. Though the Toronto Defiance addition of Casores as head coach was a surprise, the community has long been suspecting an Overwatch contender's reunion for the Canadian team in 2023. And today, the Toronto Defiant announced its full 2023 roster and confirmed that a remix of the famed American Tornado roster will be heading to the Overwatch League. In 2020 and 2021, American Tornado was a dominant team in the North American Overwatch Contenders scene, racking up first-place finishes and destroying other teams in the conference. The team disbanded in late 2021 when most of its players scattered to the Overwatch League or into collegiate play. They've then got the tweet from the Toronto Defiant embedded, which reads, Here it comes, a tornado emoji. Oh, whoops, I clicked on it by accident. Take cover, the storm has arrived in the six. At Cucumber Kaluge, at King Hydron, at Speedily OW, at Sam OW, at OGOW, at Ultraviolet OW, at Sir Majed 9. Thanks to the massive restructuring of many league teams after the 2022 season, leading to nearly 100 free agents on the table by the end of the year, Casores was able to get the gang back together on the Toronto Defiant. Former Florida Mayhem DPS Hydron will be sorry, will join up with Speedily, who most recently played for the Atlanta Reign, to recreate a dominant tornado of offense line. They'll be joined by Sam, formerly of the San Francisco Shock, who is one of the team's earliest DPS phenoms. Toronto acquired the two-for-one deal of OG and Ultraviolet for its 2023 backline. The two most recently played together on the Atlanta Reign and have been teammates on numerous rosters over the past four years. They'll be joined by former Florida Mayhem support Sir Majed, the only member of the new Defiant squad that didn't play on the American Tornado. Sorry, on American Tornado. Sir Majed was a dynamo in the EMEA contender scene, though, and his long history and competitive play ensures he fits in with this roster. 
Former San Francisco Shock Tank Kaluge will be Toronto's solo tank heading into 2023. He was a member of one of the earliest iterations of American Tornado and has played beside or against multiple members of the new roster for several years. After the Overwatch League post, uh, sorry, postseason ended, the Toronto Defiant completely dismantled its roster following a lackluster 2022 season. With new staff and a roster full of new players, the organization is clearly hoping to rise above the middle of the pack next year. So, that is the Canadian Tornado, of course. Uh, the American Tornado group, uh, in many ways, reassembled, or at least partially reassembled, with a few changes here and there. But overall, a really interesting roster here. Um, now, I say this, obviously, as a Toronto Defiant fan, but also sort of as a, call me a pundit in the scene, um, it's really interesting to kind of pick this apart. Of course, we've got many different parts of American Tornado, um, as well as, you know, different parts from different times, as Liz points out there with uh, Kaluge being one of the earlier uh, portions of American Tornado and things like that. But we also see, you know, uh, okay, a lot of these guys were on the Atlanta Reign last season. Um, a couple of these guys were in San Francisco. Uh, then, of course, we've got Hydron coming from Florida, but bringing with him Sir Majed. And I don't mean like Sir Majed riding his coattails in any way, but just the fact that Sir Majed obviously has something, some synergy, pre-existing synergy with Hydron. And then many of the rest of the team members have synergy with each other already because of American Tornado, uh, because of the Atlanta Rain, because of the San Francisco Shock. It's really interesting because there's so many different threads to pull on here. The one thing about this that I do find interesting sort of on the outside is the fact that um, there's at least one notable exception to this, and I believe that's Reiner from the Los Angeles Gladiators. So this is what I was referring to when we were talking about Dante joining the Gladiators. Um, I think it was heavily rumored that Reiner would be coming along with the American Tornado crew to Toronto. Now, obviously, uh, Kaluge seems to be the sole tank, uh, in Toronto right now and Reiner is a question mark right now obviously I think anyone who is a fan of the Los Angeles Gladiators this past season would certainly say that Reiner was a a, a core part of their success um, yes I think the org was a little slow to adapt in some of the metas obviously we saw that with the Junker Queen meta where the Gladiators really struggled um, and it seemed like they maybe had some success right towards the end of that meta when they did actually pull Reiner and bring in space uh, on the tank roll um, so maybe it was more a question of slow to adapt but ultimately I think the surprising part here is that Reiner isn't coming to Toronto so I do wonder what happened there I do wonder if that was on the table or if they were simply looking at uh, Kaluge on the shock and saying, you know, Kaluge might just be the one um, and we might not need another. I personally, I think a lot of people seemed pretty down on Kaluge at times, and I never really saw that. Now, personal um, actions and things like that aside, I actually didn't know there was any history of things like that with Kaluge until somewhat recently. But taking into account or looking at this past season with the San Francisco shock um, I was always actually impressed with his play and thought that he really held his own and then especially coming into the finals when they uh, subbed in Mikey for him I was a little bit confused by that because it did seem like Kalush had carried um, carried the tank role well on his on on his shoulders kind of thing not carried the team by any means but uh, he had performed very well and uh you know, was kind of unceremoniously ripped out in favor of Mikey, which which really surprised me uh, because he seemed seemed like he had kind of earned his stripes and and deserved to maybe stay up there. But, anyways, 
Um, all of that aside, I, I certainly think that Kaluj, especially working with a team where he has some synergy um, and, and some support and things like that, could be good enough uh, to be the sole tank. So we'll see. Um, let me pull up the roster spreadsheet that I've got here. If we look here, it has been updated. Perfect. And that does put the Toronto Defiant at seven players, right? We've got two flex support in Ultraviolet and Sir Majed. We've got a main support in OG. We've got two flex DPS in Speedily and Sam. We've got one Hitscan and Hydron, and then we've got one tank on with Kaluj. So realistically, that could be Toronto's entire roster. Um, it wouldn't surprise me at all because obviously playing with five... Um, we do then have two spares, um, of course, one on the flex support and one on the flex DPS, which makes sense and is, is a pretty typical build that we see here. This also means that this could be one of the few complete rosters that we have right now, right? If we if we look at the, uh, let's say, the Vancouver Titans, they do have five, but the minimum is six, so they still need another. Um, San Francisco and the Vegas Eternal both have five as well, so they both need one more. Um, the Florida Mayhem do have six, so they could be fielding that. That could be their full roster. Um, in my mind, they've got two flex DPS and one on every other role, so they may add another support player, which would be pretty typical. And then, of course, the Boston Uprising have eight, so they're loaded. And then the Atlanta Rain do have six as well. So they could be complete, but they are probably looking to add one more DPS, if you ask me. So anyhow interesting stuff in that Boston and Toronto may be the only teams with fully announced rosters at this point but we shall see what happens with them in the future as a Toronto fan I'm excited for this um, I do worry a little bit because this does seem like a bit of a boys club um, of course which which is not something I'm a fan of obviously being a little bit against the Atlanta rain where I get that the impression that that's been their mo for a while now as well um, I do hope that the uh, Canadian side of things can rein them in a little bit and I hope that we see some maturity from them but I also hope that we see some attitude from them because it's about time that the Canadian Overwatch League scene saw some success outside of the original runaway roster that came to Vancouver so let's continue on now for our next story we're gonna head oh I should say we're gonna stick with dotesports.com a lot of a lot of articles from dotesports.com as usual of course they are one of the uh, best reporting sites on Overwatch if you ask me and one of the few that does put out quite a bit of content for Overwatch. So anyways, I digress. Uh, point is, we've got an article here on January 24th by Nadine Mansky, which reads, Overwatch 2 January 24th, full patch notes and updates. So of course, I'm actually not going to read all of this article, uh, but I will break down the patch notes as they do in the article here. Um, because a patch was deployed today, Tuesday, January 24th, um, for the sort of final weeks of the second competitive season here so first things first we have roadhog chain hook impact damage reduced from 30 to 5 scrap gun damage per pellet reduced from 6.6 .6 to 6 recovery time reduced from 0.85 to 0.8 seconds reload time reduced from 2 to 1.75 seconds and maximum ammo increased from 5 to 6 they really like to play with that 
maximum ammo for Roadhog. That's kind of weird. Anyways, the article reads, These changes to Roadhog will majorly nerf the hero's one-shot kill potential after hooking an enemy. Before this patch, the chain hook damage plus immediate follow-up with the scrap gun meant most non-tank heroes would get one shot after being hooked. Now the damage done by the actual hook has been decreased to just 5 HP, and the target will end up a bit farther away from Roadhog. This means enemies have more of a fighting chance of being able to escape from Roadhog after being hooked. Heroes with high mobility might be able to move in time to avoid a follow-up shot, and will likely not die from the chain hook itself. To compensate for this major nerf to the infamous hook combo, Roadhog's main weapon got a few small buffs. Though the damage per pellet has been reduced, the buffs to the reload and recovery time mean Roadhog can now fire a bit faster. The ammo increase is a slight buff as well. So, a little bit of an interesting tweak there. Um, obviously, like like the article points out there, um, Roadhog could previously just annihilate most people uh, by hooking them. You do the, the, the classic hook shot and then end it with a punch and you just take them out, right? Um, this obviously changes that um, and hopefully allows most characters enough of enough wiggle room to get away if you do get hooked. Um, but I mean, I personally always found when you get hooked, it was it was typically, or when you see someone get hooked, it was typically they were already damaged a little bit. So the hook, the hook shot punch combo, kind of took them out anyways. So we'll see how much of an effect that really has. Orisa fortify health bonus reduced from 125 to 75. Orisa is just getting one sm very small tweak in this patch for her fortify ability. The ability has been deemed too powerful with 125 HP bonus in addition to its other benefits, so Orisa is receiving a slight nerf. This won't be a huge change, but Orisa players might want to keep a closer eye on their HP bars when using fortify. Nothing to really talk too much about there. It's pretty straightforward change, uh, pretty straightforward minor nerf, but ultimately I think Orisa is still going to be pretty decent right now. Sojourn. Railgun. Energy gain is no longer based on damage done by primary fire, but instead, each primary fire hit on an enemy now grants 5 energy. Primary fire damage per projectile is reduced from 10 to 9. Players have been calling for nerfs to Sojourn's railgun for a long time. This nerf will reduce the charge time for her railgun in almost all circumstances. Damage boost on Sojourn or armor on enemies both become nullified with this change. Damage boosted shots will still only grant 5 energy, even if she hits a target with armor or discord orb, for example. She still gets 5 energy per shot. This transforms her railgun into a bit of a unique weapon. Something to note from this patch uh, from this is that sorry, is the patch notes specify energy will now only be given for hitting enemy players, not enemy shields or other utility. Overwatch 2 players might still be able to charge her railgun quickly, but this forces them to into tighter situations where they are actually confronting enemies face to face. So, as again, as uh, who who was this article from? As Nadine points out, there, obviously Sojourn has been the sort of one of the targets of a lot of ire when it comes to the Overwatch community. Um, a lot of people are not fans of of Sojourn or playing against Sojourn because basically every match is playing against Sojourn and every match should have a Sojourn because she was just so dominant, right? Her railgun charge and then secondary fire. Um, would just annihilate most people and especially when you pop that ult it's almost you know if you're playing with a player that has any skill it's almost an immediate three kills so good to see that they're nerfing sojourn although it feels more like they're tweaking sojourn than nerfing her yes she's going to build less of that secondary fire ult, uh charge or she's going to build it less quickly um but obviously it's still going to be pretty oppressive um, I do appreciate that, you know, you'll no longer build it from uh, uh, shields and uh, other utility, as they say in the article here. Um, 
But ultimately, I don't think this is going to change too much about Sojourn. I think she's still going to be oppressive. Um, and I do wonder how they... I don't know how they really tweak Sojourn to uh, to really make her that effective. Uh, to make her less oppressive, I should say. Moving on from there. Kuriko, healing Afuda. Recovery time increased from 0.85 to 1 second. This is a big nerf for Kuriko's overall healing output and transforms her playstyle even more towards a dual-purpose support hero. Each Ofuda still carries the same amount of healing, but players now have to think more carefully about how they are using the papers instead of spamming their primary fire. Since it takes longer to recover after use, Kuriko players have to think more carefully about how they are directing their healing and have the opportunity to use their secondary fire more often. Kuriko has been a top support pick since her release, largely due to her incredible damage output, but her healing has also been borderline broken. The skill ceiling for Kuriko should become a bit higher with this change, and players should be even more focused on using damage. So that's the interesting thing about this one. Um, again, if you listen to this episode of Plat Chat, they've also got Jake on there who talks a little bit about Kuriko and how, how oppressive she is. Um, the funny thing is this stops her from healing a little bit and encourages her to do more damage. At the highest levels of play, this arguably makes her more dangerous <laughs> because she's now not only putting out a ton of, of health, um, but she's also almost being forced to deal out damage more frequently than she was previously in order to use her to her full extent. Um, at lower levels of, prey, of play, sorry, I think she's going to be pretty much the same. I don't think we'll see much effect from this at all, um, which is kind of where I play, right? So so nothing, nothing too exciting there, so... Anyways, that's it for the actual hero patch notes. Um, so a little bit lighter on this, but this kind of an update, I think is actually a great example of what I would love to see the team do with patches going forward. Drop one of these updates every... Honestly, I would say one of these updates every week, right? Give me once a week one of these updates. Or, you know what, actually, let, let me rephrase that a bit. Give me alternating weeks. So one week, let's say week one of February well, of January, just for example, for ease, let's say week one, we get one of these updates, right? There's, let's say, four heroes um, being targeted. They're pretty minor nerfs or buffs or changes. They're more so tweaks than anything. And then the next week, give me a more significant but still not major. So let's say rather than four heroes, maybe we focus on, I mean, let's say like eight to ten heroes. And again... Similar kind of thing, just more tweaks and more small, more minor changes just to make things a little bit more balanced, maybe change things up a little bit more, maybe make a certain character a little more effective, a little less effective, things like that. Then in between the major seasons, drop those major patches that do the significant changes like uh, nerfing Roadhog into the ground, like nerfing Sojourn into the ground, like uh, changing Kuriko significantly, or, or reworking a character's kit like Roadhog, or uh, like we saw with someone like Orisa upon the release of Overwatch 2, things like that, right? I think they could get in this really good cadence of minor tweak, minor tweak, minor tweak, minor tweak, do that for two months to keep the community happy, then major patch, right? And that would also, of course, be when you drop, let's say, a new hero, right? And of course, there's always going to be a little more work to do at the beginning of uh, sort of the season after those major drops. But I think you could kind of account for a lot of that and kind of plan things out. It really does seem like uh, a little bit mind-boggling that they're not doing something like this. And honestly, I mean, there's smart people working at Blizzard and on the Overwatch team. I'm sure they've talked about this. I'm sure that's, you know, somewhere they'd like to be. Again, maybe it's down to resourcing. Maybe it's something entirely different that we just have no insight into. But Ultimately, this is the kind of thing I would like to see. Now, 
for our final story here as we wrap up the show. Well, before we wrap up the show, I should say. We're going to head on over to overwatch.blizzard.com with an article by Blizzard Entertainment themselves, posted today on January 24th, which reads, Announcing the 36 teams competing in the 2023 Overwatch World Cup. That's right, we're going to end things on a high note here. In 2023, the fifth Overwatch World Cup competition will crown the first World Cup champion since 2019. Reigning champion United States and three-time winner South Korea will try to build on their legacy with another gold medal, but the launch of Overwatch 2 brings new competitors to the scene. Will a new champion be crowned this year? It's time to meet your competing countries and regions. World Cup trials and online qualifier competing countries and regions. That's, That's a title. The program will consist of three conferences, each with two separate groups of six countries and regions. These countries and regions have been selected based on Overwatch 2 player population data. In February, competition committee applications begin. Additionally, each participating country and region will host World Cup trials over three weekends in February. February 10th to 12th, February 17th through 19th, February 24th through 26th. Competition committees will be responsible for organizing additional team tryouts in March and finalizing a team of seven players in April. In addition to the 36 selected countries and regions, the 2023 Overwatch World Cup will have a wildcard challenge that will award four additional spots for teams to compete. Details around the wildcard challenge will be published in February. In June, teams will compete with their groups to earn one of 16 spots at the LAN Finals, scheduled to be held in the fall of 2023. Given the current dynamics in China, and that a team from China has always performed very well, including two second-place finishes in the last two Overwatch World Cups, a team from China will receive a direct invitation to the group stage. There will be no World Cup trials in China, and the team will not compete in the online qualifiers. The the tryouts process in China will differ from that of other countries-slash-regions. We will share more information with players in the China region regarding that process directly. I'm going to pause there. Obviously, I don't need to talk too much about everything going on with netties and that we've already talked about but interesting that china is getting a bit of a buy into the tournament but ultimately not surprising and i don't think anyone would really complain that that's unfair given the fact that they can't even play the game right now and obviously they don't really have an indication of when they might be able to play again so there you have it here's a breakdown of the 36 teams and six groups for the online qualifiers america's conference so here we have the america a group is Canada, Costa Rica, Guatemala, Mexico, Puerto Rico, and United States. America B is Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru. Obviously, we see a little bit of, um, well, I mean, not a little bit. We see a North American versus a South American uh, slant there. Obviously, that is to allow for these these teams um, to compete against one another um, in terms of time zones, in terms of ease of competition, things like that, um, so that the winners ultimately can uh, rise to the top right moving on from there we have the europe and middle east conference with group a being belgium france great britain italy netherlands and spain group b is germany norway poland saudi arabia sweden and turkey finally we have our asia pacific conference which is group a chinese taipei hong kong indonesia japan philippines south korea and group b is australia india malaysia new zealand singapore and thailand with the team from china securing one of the 16 spots advancing to groups this is the distribution of the remaining 15 spots that teams will compete for in the online qualifiers america a3 emec which is of course the european uh, middle east region uh three 
APAC A3, America B2, EMEC B2, and APAC B2. Competition committees. Each team will be represented by a competition committee that consists of the following three roles. General manager, responsible for team operations and communications with Blizzard. Coach, responsible for leading tryouts, player selection, and all competitive aspects of the team. Social lead, responsible for the team's social media, content, and engagement initiatives. Think you've got what it takes to lead your Homelands competition committee? Here's how you can get involved. Step one, blah, blah, blah. Step two, step three. So they obviously have the process outlined there. I'm not going to go into that because that's not too exciting for... The purposes of this article. They then have a stay informed section where they talk a little bit about how to keep up to date on this. And then they have some frequently asked questions. So I do want to jump in here because these do have some interesting tidbits. Are there opportunities for countries slash regions not in the above list to compete in the 2020 in 2023? Sorry. Countries slash regions not in the list above have an opportunity to compete for four remaining spots through a wildcard challenge that will be revealed on February 1st, 2023, on overwatchworldcup.com. So interesting stuff there. In just over a week, uh, a week by the time you're listening to this, we will actually be getting uh, more information on that. If you follow the link to overwatchworldcup.com, it is a broken art, uh, sorry, a broken link. What is the format of the World Cup Trials? Double a limb, randomly seated bracket. The winner of each World Cup Trials will earn a guaranteed spot in their country or region's team march tryouts. Who is allowed to apply for competition committee positions? Any person with an active Battle.net account in good standing is eligible to apply for a community committee position for their country or region of residence. When and where can I sign up for the World Cup trials? Trial signups will open on February 1st, 2023 through the new Overwatch World Cup website. Uh, they then have the link there again, which let's just try it again. Second time, still not working. Uh, which will launch on the same day. Oh, there we go. Okay, it's not going to be live until February 1st. <laughs> Find your team and get ready to compete against the best in your country or region. Where are the rules of the tournament? World Cup trials will be available in the sign-up portals for each respective tournament. The competition rules for the online qualifiers, group stage, and land finals will be delivered directly to the final committees and players for their acknowledgement. On-site expectations, prizing details, match format, and other information will be communicated directly to these teams. What documents do you need to be eligible to participate as a part of a representing team? Participants must provide proof of a valid passport, and in the event your passport doesn't match the country or region you are trying to represent, you will also need to provide to Blizzard proof of a government-issued identification from the country or region you're trying to represent. Participants must use a Battle.net account in your name in good standing with residents registered to the country or region you're trying to represent. Eligibility to apply and represent will depend on country of residence and the game account standing, so make sure your Blizzard account is up to date and in good standing. So there you go. A lot of information on the format of the Overwatch World Cup, which is exciting because, of course, we knew it was coming, um, but more information is always exciting. Really, the big takeaway here in my mind is the 36 uh, teams and the uh, six groups there. Of course, this means that, you know, um, we we have a little bit of an idea of who will be competing against who. Um, of course, I mean, if I had to pick favorites in America A, we've got Canada, Costa Rica, Guatemala, Mexico, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. I think it's probably a shoo-in that the United States and Canada both uh, secure a spot in Group A. Of course, we know there are three teams that will be uh, selected from there. So where does the final slot go? That much I don't know. Then, of course, America B. Um, I know there's a pretty strong Overwatch presence in Brazil, so it wouldn't surprise me a ton to see um, Brazil advance. Other than that, I don't really know. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I just don't know. I, I Honestly, I don't know what the infrastructure is like down there, truly. But I know I've heard that the Brazilian contender scene has in the past been pretty successful. So um, that's the only reason I put my money on them. Then uh, sort of the, the Europe and Middle Eastern Conference is maybe one of the more interesting ones. Um, because we do have, obviously, a large cluster of, of countries in that area. Um, and we have seen a ton of representation in past World Cups from these these uh, different countries, right? We've got Belgium, France, Great Britain, Italy, Netherlands, Spain, Germany, Norway, Poland, Saudi Arabia, Sweden, Turkey. Um, it would be exciting to see Saudi Arabia show up uh, just because obviously in past years we've seen some recent representation um, from Saudi Arabia. So that's exciting. Of course, um, you know, seeing seeing a team like Sweden return, obviously Reinforce uh, played for Team Sweden would be exciting. Um We'll likely see a team from, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see Great Britain, maybe France advance. Would be exciting to see some some familiar French faces return with the, uh, you know, with the, I don't know, dissolving of uh, the Paris Eternal. So lots of exciting stuff there. And then, of course, you know, Asia Pacific is also exciting. We've got uh, Chinese Taipei, Hong Kong, you know, Japan, uh, even the Philippines, obviously South Korea, um, uh, Australia, where we know that uh, we've seen a few players come out of Australia into the league, but also we know it's a bit isolated given geography. Um, New Zealand, Thailand, we've seen a few players come out of. Um, I don't know if we have too much Indian representation. Uh, I don't know what it's like in Malaysia or Singapore, but ultimately I'm excited for this. This is going to be my first real World uh, Overwatch World Cup experience. So I'm excited to see this, um, especially coming off the high that was, you know, the FIFA World Cup uh, this past year. Um, I'm, I'm just really excited for some international competition. Now, with all of that said and done, we've finally reached the end of the news segment of the show. That's right, it was chock full of stuff. So let's take a quick break, and we'll return with the Overwatch League 2023 offseason trade tracker. Yeah, let's pick it up! So, of course, we are an hour into the show, but we don't have a ton of updates to talk about on the Overwatch League 2023 offseason trade tracker, presented by Liz Richardson of DottieSports.com. Um, just a few moves here to mention. Uh, of course, we'll start with one that I did talk about in uh, the previous episode of One Man Watchpoint, January 4th, Florida Mayhem sign, uh, sorry, adds Sauna and Chorong. Of course, we uh, Sauna being a new pickup and Chorong coming from the Toronto Defiant. Los Angeles Gladiators parts ways with Reiner. So obviously we talked about Reiner a little bit earlier in the show. January 5th, Los Angeles Gladiators parts ways with Skewed. So that's a bit of an interesting one. Um, Los Angeles, not too sure what's going on there. Obviously we, know, know, we now know that they signed uh, Dante there um, when was that actually? Uh, that was January 19th. I'm a little bit surprised not to not see that on here. But anyways, uh, interesting, a little bit of a question mark, what exactly is going on with the Los Angeles Gladiators, of course. Then on January 9th, the Hangzhou Spark named Rui as head coach. So again, this is uh, up there with the Shanghai Dragons signing Moon as coach, as head coach. Um, does indicate that these Chinese organizations have a future with the Overwatch League. Um, what exactly that looks like, though? Who knows at this point? Then finally, our final update on here is the Seoul Dynasty re-signing Profit. Of course, it was announced from uh, the Seoul Dynasty Twitter account here with a nice little image that just says, Resigned Profit. And then the the text is Resigned Profit at Profit OW. Hashtag, hashtag Tiger Nation. Hashtag Soul Dynasty. So 
Prophet, returning to the Soul Dynasty once again. Uh, kind of exciting. Obviously, he's floated around the league a little bit. I believe he even announced he was retiring at one point there. But ultimately, exciting to see him, uh, one of the greats of the league, uh, return and return to an organization like the Soul Dynasty. Actually, if I pull up the rosters here again, the Soul Dynasty, a team that we know little about right now, uh, is Prophet the only one? Prophet is the only player we know about uh, being signed to the Soul Dynasty. So very interesting stuff there. And with that, that's all we have. So I think it's time to head on over and outro the show. Double time! Well, there you have it. That's episode 99 of One Man Watchpoint and Overwatch Podcast. If you are a returning listener or if you are a new listener, first of all, thank you so very much for listening and thank you for your support. I'm, of course, your host, Sir Dr. Jam. That's at Sir DRJM on all socials. You can follow me, especially over on the Bird app where you can find me at Sir DRJM. And I actually also wanted to do a special shout out this episode uh, to one, uh, well, I'm not going to say his last name, to Ben, who actually uh, ran into my wife uh, this past weekend, and uh, she commented on some Overwatch League apparel he was wearing, and he said, oh my gosh, I'm a big fan. I believe he had three different articles of Overwatch League clothing on at the time. Um, and anyways, uh, she mentioned uh, One Man Watchpoint as well as Ready, Set, Pwn, and he he is a listener of both. So uh, thank you so much, Ben, for your support, of course, and uh, thank you for your continued support, of course, as well. Anyways... If you'd like a shout out like that, find me in real life or find my wife in real life because, uh, you know, there you go. That's one way to get on the show. If, of course, you do want to follow me, follow me over on Twitter at SirDRJM. You can, of course, find this podcast on podcast services everywhere, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, etc., etc. So give us a review, tell your friends all that jazz. And if you do give us a review, I will certainly read it out on the next episode of the show. If you enjoy the sound of my voice, please check out the Ready, Set, Pwn podcast as well, your premier source for everything Vancouver Titans and Toronto Defiant. And, of course, with that said, I'll catch you in two weeks' time on One Man Watchpoint. And, of course, next week, I'll catch you on the Ready, Set, Pwn podcast. Thank you. Oh, man, I hope you didn't work too hard on that.